0: Local ownership of the clean energy future is as critical as just getting to a clean energy future when we talk about an inclusive society and a just society because if large investor-owned utilities just build out the new renewables infrastructure and local communities are still essentially held hostage to ever-rising energy costs and those energy resources, those dollars are flowing out of our community forever, That's a real drain, and it's going to continue to be a growing drain on on our local economies. And so we can flip that on its head. And if we invest locally in the efficiency, in the locally owned renewables, in the new technologies, in the electrification, we can really put most of those investments in our communities.
1: Welcome back to the Rise Up podcast, where we want to help with the good people of the Midwest work building the energy economy of the future. I'm Jordan Poubles.
2: I'm Nick Hyla, and we'll be working together to share opinions, news, resources, strategies, success stories, and actions you can take. And we'll grow the movement to build a local, resilient, clean, and reliable energy system that provides the greatest possible benefit to people and planet.
1: Net energy metering, or net metering, It's a simple policy that has helped hundreds of thousands of people in 38 U.S. states invest in solar energy on their homes or businesses.
2: Yes, net metering has exceeded all expectations. It's brought an entirely new class of investment into the distribution system with home and businesses, hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses investing in solar. And uh, it's a great business investment opportunity or household investment opportunity because you get compensated the same per unit of solar-generated electricity as you pay for electricity from the utility grid.
1: Right. The investment is simple to model since the solar electric system has a predictable output year after year. The output is monitored in real time and the electricity generation is directly related to the reduced utility payments. For every kilowatt hour produced by a solar electric system, you buy one less kilowatt hour from the utility.
2: Well, it ends up being the buy one less kilowatt hour from the utility part that has made this simple policy so complicated. For nearly 100 years, the electric utility business model has not had to deal with a technology that is so accessible, reliable, and effective at reducing home and business energy use. Not only that, but it is coming with a wave of energy efficiency and energy management technologies that are giving more and more opportunities to reduce electricity use while maintaining the same or even improved electricity excess and reliability and reducing long-term costs.
1: It's pretty simple when you look at it from a utility investor point of view. The investor is used to making 7 to 15% returns on every dollar that they invest. Those returns are protected by a state regulatory body, making them very low risk. And the amount that you can invest had been increasing and increasing as we built more coal plants, more gas plants, more nuclear plants, and more transmission lines. And then along came improved energy efficiency options and energy management technologies and policies like solar net metering that empower customers to reduce energy use. This reduces the need for more investment, uh, thus reducing your ability to make more money. Wealthy and politically connected investors do not like making less money. In recent years, they have quickly transitioned their investments into wind and solar, which still protects their investment returns, as long as they own it and it's not owned by local homes and
2: businesses. Oh, the influence of these investors has set us back decades in our transition to a more open, competitive, and clean energy system. And it has made state energy policy a full-contact sport with a ragtag bunch of homeowners, small business owners, consumer advocates, environmental groups, free market conservatives, and energy geeks facing off against the most wealthy and politically connected lobbies in nearly every state.
1: In this context, with today's divisive politics, corporate campaign spending now recognized as quote-unquote free speech, and all of the issues that the average person is concerned about It's amazing that we have made as much progress as we have.
2: Yes, but I can't help but think what our economy would look like if utility investors would have taken all of the time, money, and resources they use to fight energy efficiency and clean energy and instead worked with households, businesses, including the growing industry that manufactures, supplies, operates, and maintains this new energy economy, and the communities where all of this exists and who benefit, and worked with them to invest in a new energy economy instead.
1: Aww, shucks Nick, that's a sweet thought. But I think maybe you've been spending too much time at home.
2: (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's important to live in the real world, but here is a relevant and timely example from the real world. In July of last year, that's the year 2019 for those of us stuck in the coronavirus time warp, the state of Ohio passed legislation that gutted the state's renewable and energy efficiency laws while bailing out several coal and nuclear plants. The law was a multi-billion dollar gift to the private electric utility First Energy. The nation's most prominent electric utility industry lobby the Edison Electric Institute, gave First Energy an award for its work on the bill, while the vast majority of analysis judged it as the worst energy legislation of any state in the country. Well, as it turns out, the FBI just arrested the bill's author, the Ohio Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, for being complicit in $61 million in bribes doled out by First Energy to pass the legislation. The story plays out in different degrees at state houses across the country, and on occasion someone gets caught.
1: Yeah, not a good look for electric utilities in the Midwest at the moment. Similar situation is playing out in Illinois as well. Curious, Nick, what do you think it would be like today if, say, five or ten years ago, electric utilities would have used their influence and human capacity and resources to fully support a transition to a more distributed and locally owned energy economy?
2: Well, I think it would look a lot like the vision of an energy district that Andy Johnson and the good people at the Winnishik Energy District in Iowa have been working toward, That transition would begin with local engagement and the utility would be a trusted and honest leader helping to define strategies that provide the greatest local benefit. The strategies would be focused on meeting the goals already set by laws and regulations in each state to define the most reasonable and prudent investments for ratepayers. It would answer some of the critical questions about the most suitable local resources, the potential for ratepayer adoption of the growing suite of energy management technologies the benefits of a diversity of investments in the local distribution system versus large transmission projects, the value of local energy resiliency, the value of local economic development, the value of solar and or storage deployed on the grid, and the role of the utility in managing the new system. My sense is that the benefits to utility investors of the resulting electrification could even exceed the benefits they currently receive They would likely need to transition a lot of their personnel expenses from lawyers and lobbyists to engineers and technicians, however. The utility influence would be more strongly felt as a positive local force for change instead of a negative force resisting it at every state capitol building.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the influence has revolved around net metering for home and business solar. We've seen electric utilities across the Midwest ramp up their own investment in large-scale solar farms while systematically dismantling net metering for home and business owners by lobbying to repeal state laws, limiting the size of solar energy systems that qualify Increasing fixed charges on utility bills, placing fees on solar owners, developing demand charges that reduce the financial benefits of solar energy, and eliminating net metering when customers produce more energy than they are using at any given minute, day, or month. We've seen dark money groups funded by utility investors advance legislation to kill net metering in states such as Iowa, and now even at the federal level.
2: And yet... Customer-owned solar energy is so widely supported, provides real benefits to businesses, employs so many people, and has become such a powerful local economic development engine that in state after state these efforts have mostly all failed. There is already legislation to repeal Ohio's fossil fuel bribery bill, and in the case of Iowa, an effort by utility investors to kill net metering resulted in new bipartisan legislation that established net metering statewide.
1: Now that is truly an interesting and revealing story, which our guest Andy Johnson is going to talk about today. He is also going to talk about the concept of energy districts that organize local residents to develop an energy economy that works for them.
2: I am very excited to hear from Andy. He really understands the energy market. He understands the great potential that electric utility companies have to become real partners in the clean energy movement. He understands the very real benefits that communities get from local investment in solar and efficiency, and he's been working for years in eastern Iowa to organize communities, provide education, and empower people to create an energy economy that provides the most local benefit.
1: Well, let's get to it. But first, a quick word from today's Rise Up sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Speed Solar. There are so many reasons to choose Speed Solar's bifacial solar panels for your project, but the best has to be that bifacial panels generate 15-25% to more power than similarly-sized monofacial panels. More power means a faster return on your investment. In fact, Speed Solar believes that bifacial solar technology is so much better that that's all they sell. Visit www.speedsolar.net to see the latest test comparison data and what Speed Solar can offer for you. And if you want to join our growing coalition of businesses, individuals, organizations, jurisdictions, and workforce development partners working together to create a groundswell of support for common sense, strategic, and swift policy action to put the good people of the Midwest to work building the energy economy of the future, please consider supporting the Rise Up Midwest movement through both sponsorship and partnership. For more information, please visit www.riseupmidwest.org or email us. At info at riseupmidwest.org. Today, we're excited to welcome Andy Johnson to the Rise Up podcast. Andy is the co founder and director of the Winnipeg Energy District, a nonprofit dedicated to leading, implementing, and accelerating a locally owned, inclusive clean energy transition in Winnipeg County, Iowa. For over 25 years, he has worked in sustainable agriculture, private lands conservation, community development, and clean energy, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andy. We are really excited to have you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So first things first, how are you doing there in Decorah in the midst of all of this?
0: Well, we're doing pretty well. Our organization, we've certainly seen some changes and made some adjustments, public gatherings. are are not advised, so we're not holding public events as much, but we do move those virtual, and so we've done online solar fairs and online talks, technical assistance, I'll talk more about later, but, you know, we do energy auditing, energy planning, technical assistance. Some of that is slowed down, but some actually can continue. For example, farm energy assessments, you know, one energy specialist and one farmer can walk around a farm pretty easily with social distancing. So actually, some of our work continues, but we've certainly seen some changes and made some adjustments
1: well i'm so glad to hear that you're doing well and obviously strategic responses and resource and message pivoting is of the utmost importance right now and i'm glad that you've been able to successfully accomplish that within your organization so you had alluded to this a bit as you were responding but i'd love for you to elaborate on what an energy district is and how it has helped to advance Energy efficiency, solar and wind energy, and grid resiliency in Iowa.
0: I'll try and start with the concept a little bit. We are at this point non-governmental, so an energy district is a nonprofit. I'll start with that. We're moving towards the idea of being a little bit more of a quasi-governmental legal entity. At this point, we're nonprofits formed at the county line, so formed to cover a county. We say we're universal local institutions that build a locally owned clean energy future, and there's a lot in there, so. To try and unpack that a little bit, by universal local we mean a model for local leadership and implementation of clean energy that is easily replicable and is both geographically and socioeconomically inclusive. And Many folks are aware that there are clean energy efforts at all levels and all scales across the country. There are many community-based efforts, and when we were first getting going in here in Winnesheek, we were, of course, looking at some of those and considering some sort of maybe local sustainability committee or council in our town. But the more we thought about that, we realized, look, I mean, a town, especially in the Midwest, all the flyover country is is, you know, much more integrated than the big metro areas, the town and, and the rural. And we really needed to tackle the issues and the challenges and the opportunities, both town and rural and everything in between. And we needed to do it through local local leadership in a way that created an institution, not just a committee or a council, Try to institutionalize this process that promotes both local ownership, local leadership, and then allows for replication. You know, to unpack the how you do the lead and accelerate a locally owned future, clean energy future, we also really believe in a couple key concepts. And one of them Is technical assistance. Every home, household, farm, business, governmental entity, pretty much everyone knows that there's a lot of opportunity out there to save energy and save money. You know, we hear that, we've heard that over and over of our lives. And yet, how do you do that? How do you really do that in a way that's meaningful, that is cost effective, where you have confidence that you're putting your money in the right places, especially when many of these investments are in the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars as the energy user gets bigger. And so that technical analysis has been foundational and central. Now, we haven't been able to do as much as we want in large part because that costs money. And the programs that should fund that work at the local level are often utility-led and, and are not a good, good match. But those are struggles that we're, we're continuing to, to overcome. So we've done quite a bit of technical assistance. We call it energy planning. Many people think of it as energy auditing or have heard of it that way. We think of energy planning as energy auditing that works energy auditing that gets results. It's a process, not just a product, as opposed to many of the energy audits, which are just sort of a piece of paper, a product from a utility auditor that's not really meant actually to create change. It's not in the interest of utility to reduce the sale of their principal product. So this isn't a knock on all utilities. There are utilities that have done really good energy efficiency programs, but most of them it's not really in their interest. So an energy district attempts to lead and build that local ownership. So that's the other really key principle I want to mention. Local ownership of the clean energy future is as critical as just getting to a clean energy future when we talk about an inclusive society and a just society. Because if large investor-owned utilities just build out the new renewables infrastructure and local communities are still essentially held hostage to ever-rising energy costs and those energy resources, those dollars are flowing out of our community forever. That's a real drain, and it's going to continue to be a growing drain on, on our local economies. And so we can flip that on its head. And if we invest locally in the efficiency, in the locally owned renewables, in the new technologies, in the electrification, we can really put most of those investments in our communities rather than letting them flow you know, right out the door. So that's pretty important.
1: Partnership is... Incredibly important as you just talked about. And here in Wisconsin, we're fortunate enough to have the most cost effective investor owned utility energy efficiency program in the nation and focus on energy. But that's obviously not the case everywhere. So having entities like energy districts is important in securing more broad access to distributed generation and energy efficiency technologies. In a future where energy district models continue to expand in other areas, how do you foresee other areas going about adopting their own energy district concepts, and similarly, how do you envision the future of the energy district model itself evolving as their adoption continues to expand?
0: Sure. Yeah, well, with in terms of ex- sort of expanding and growing the energy district network as a movement, I mentioned that when we created Winnipeg Energy District, we did do so thinking this could be a model, maybe that's replicable, because there really is a missing link in implementation of clean energy across the country. We've had federal and state policies and whatnot, but the potential is still so vastly you know, larger than what we've been able to accomplish. And to harness that leadership would take sort of a, a network and a replication beyond just a sustainability organization here and there. But at the same time, we knew that that wasn't our job. We're starting a brand-new little nonprofit. We actually had to just get to work and sort of do the hard work on the ground in our community. And that went on for about five years. So between about 2010 and 2015, we really did just focus on our work locally, mostly technical and communications, community engagement, market transformation, which is really important. But so about 2015, though, we started having conversations with folks in our neighboring counties, many of whom, some of whom we had already started serving because some of our services were spilling over the county lines, and that was just fine as long as we could do it and there was interest and and sort of demand. People were coming to some of our events, you know, solar fairs and energy efficiency workshops. So then those conversations started happening with champions in our neighboring counties saying, hey, maybe we should try to do that here. The services you're providing are great, but they're not local to us. You know, we have local champions. We can work together. And so we started that coaching role as well. And we did that for the first two or three new energy districts. And in some of our neighboring counties in northeast Iowa, it was mostly just sort of us at Winnishik here, reaching out, providing that. Well, here's the process we went through. Here's, here's the logistics of starting a nonprofit. It's not that hard. Here's some of the early activities you can do, of course, that are relatively low resource need. All nonprofits, of course, struggle with resources. We actually had a great partner. We've had many partners. One of them was the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. So this is a regional community foundation here in northeastern Iowa. stepped up and said, you know, we'd, we'd like to help with that outreach as a convener. Together, we pursued some funds and moved towards the establishment of an association. So just a couple years ago now, we really were in the process of forming what is now the Clean Energy Districts of Iowa, SETI. So that's our legal association. The challenge of this model, it's built off local champions, and local champions are everywhere. And that's what we're seeing, really, with the energy district network growth. Champions, you know, the networks, people have their own networks, and we're all part of a lot of networks throughout our states and beyond And so then people learn about the model and say, oh, you're involved in an energy district. Yeah, I've heard of that. Maybe we should do one here. And so then people are helping each other think through this process and what it might take. And and that is tremendous because there are champions everywhere. And I think what a lot of us involved in the clean energy community have known for a long, long time is that these champions are everywhere, but where are the tools to enable them to make a big difference, to make change happen. And so this really gets at that fundamental question, how does change happen? And obviously in most of our culture and society, we look to the policymakers. We think we need the big federal laws or the state laws to make that change happen. Those are important. I'm not reducing the importance of that at all. But I am a believer in the, the idea that change really does start with people's hearts and minds and communities. You can have a lot of state laws, and of course, people that have worked and lived internationally and abroad and in developing countries especially have a really good understanding that policy can be meaningless. (laughs) And in the U.S., thankfully, it's not mostly meaningless, but it can certainly not have the intended effects. And of course, as we all know, we can't even get the policies that we want oftentimes. And yet, this tremendously polarized society we have is actually less so the more local you get. And that doesn't mean we don't have troubles in even all of our rural counties and communities, but people have a tendency to have higher trust in their local institutions and to actually have much more of a can-do attitude, I think. And so what energy districts are doing, in a way, is creating an institution, creating a structure that people can organize around and within and say, let's do this. It's both a soapbox, but it's not just a preaching soapbox. It's a doing institution. We've got to get the resources to get the boots on the ground to help people understand their opportunities in efficiency, in in renewables, in locally owned solar, in all kinds of other aspects of this. And so that's where really, as we look at expanding across Midwestern states and just even within Iowa, to turn this into a real network that is effective at every county and not just a group of people organized but without resources we probably need to follow some sort of that original soil and water conservation district model, which essentially is a public partnership. SWCDs were created by authorizing legislation that states passed that allows leadership at the county level to create a district that then becomes a locally elected entity and is legally recognized and federal and state resources pass through that. They are the local implementers. In many ways, we, Winnishik as a nonprofit, is a local implementer, but we don't have that legal recognition by the state so that we don't just automatically get the resources flowing down to us. If every energy district right now just continues to be a nonprofit, all sort of competing for some of the same small minimal grant funds and trying to do local fundraising, we will never really get where we need to be. So pursuing the development of model state-authorizing legislation for energy districts on the one hand, and on the other hand, pursuing a robust financial resource mechanism for funding those energy districts. Now, those can be the same issue, of course, but they're a little bit different, mainly because the financial side, of course, for everyone to think, oh, wow, you're going to (laughs) create a new bureaucracy at the local level everywhere, well, we can address that issue. And then you're going to ask for new public funding for it, well, we can address that issue, too. The new local bureaucracy thing, some people might see it as a bureaucracy, but really it's not a mandate. So in water districts and energy districts now are not, there's no mandate there, it's an opportunity. And if locals want to organize and put the, put the shoe leather and the elbow grease into creating an energy district, that's essentially what authorizing legislation would, would enable, that that would then be similar to a soil and water district which, which has minimal state resource needs um, an authorized activity and then sort of a legal entity. Now, how are you going to fund it? With existing dollars. The dollars to flow through energy districts to put these boots on the ground and do the locally owned clean energy transition already exist in most of our states to a really significant level through many programs, but the main one oftentimes is the energy efficiency programs. So these are ratepayer funded energy efficiency programs where there's a small surcharge on energy bills, and it's plowed back into these state programs to promote energy efficiency. And most of our states have them and they're implemented in different ways. But what we're saying is just a chunk of, just a piece, say 20%, some percentage of those energy efficiency program dollars could then be earmarked for local professionals to provide the quality technical assistance to all of our homes, farms, and businesses to do that energy planning, that energy auditing that works. So those dollars are already there If authorizing legislation created energy districts as the recognized local implementer and then essentially helped them ensure that we had a trained technical workforce working in those energy districts, which we do here, then the energy efficiency program dollars could flow through those local implementers. The local technical providers would be highly trusted and are wherever they're present by their local homes, farms, and businesses, and that energy efficiency and renewable energy essentially flywheel the momentum just builds, and we cross tipping points of acceptance and implementation, and we, we're often rolling. And that is what we've been seeing here in Winnishie County. But to do that everywhere, um, we probably need that policy partnership.
1: It must be gratifying to see a concept that you've worked so hard on gain such widespread interest. I think we all know the power of grassroots activism and community members that have their boots on the ground trying to resolve important issues like equitable and affordable access to clean energy, so it's wonderful that you've worked so hard to create a model that is easily replicable and makes forming new energy districts, even in varying political environments, fairly easy for communities that are motivated to adopt it. I was hoping to switch gears a bit here since Iowa recently had a big legislative win in the passing of its new net metering bill. Through this bill, Iowa has extended the availability of retail rate net metering until at least July 1st, 2027 or when statewide distributed generation penetration reaches 5%. The story of how this came about is very interesting. Can you tell us from your perspective, how did Iowa go from the threat of losing net metering to statewide legislation over the last year?
0: Yeah. Like any major legislative victory, there's a lot of sub-stories to it. And this one really does go back many years. And just a very few highlights of that include we had what was called a distributed generation docket from 2014. It lasted three years to 2017 where the state utilities board, it was a it was an investigative docket. It wasn't a specific rate docket, but it was investigating issues around that metering and interconnection and what was fair and what was just and what the utilities were saying and what the advocates were saying. And we were, even just a small nonprofit, we actually jumped into that docket. It was one of our first regulatory experiences. And we had tremendous input actually from local customers and businesses and communities from northeast Iowa here because we had really been on this acceleration train of, of both efficiency and locally owned solar. That docket, essentially the outcome was the utility board at that time told the two big Iowa investor-owned in utilities, Alliance and Mid-American Energy, who, which were trying to overturn net metering. Basically, the utility board said, we just don't see the problem here, folks. <laughs> and this was a Republican-dominated appointed utility board. They said, penetration rates are really really low all the potential negative impacts on the grid or on your economics just maybe if they're going to come about it's going to be a long ways down the road so just keep doing this essentially net metering they allowed some revisions which weren't great but it was mostly still essentially effective net metering that was a big victory actually for Iowa advocates at that time a year ago then essentially the utilities came back and this was led we believe by MidAmerican Energy with a legislative effort, and it was it appeared to be a done deal. It was essentially an overturning of net metering legislatively and the establishment of all kinds of onerous charges, fixed charges and fees, and, of course, done under the guise of very positive-looking sort of rates and languages, but the goal was to overturn net metering. And we everyone thought that they had it wrapped up, locked up, because leadership in the House and the Senate in Iowa were apparently gunning for it, and it sailed through the Senate really quickly, and we were... You know, we we all expected something like this might come, but they waited actually into the term to drop it and then it was moving fast. Well, it got hung up in the House and for many, many different reasons. But the advocacy community had built quite a network already of strength. We've been working on this for years. We've been building partnerships with ag groups, including the port producers. We've been holding tours where both Democrat and Republican legislators, these are informational solar tours, not partisan tours had attended for many years. And so there were actually many representatives in the Iowa House who were solar owners. <laughs> there were many on both sides of the aisle who said, wait a minute, this doesn't look quite right. And uh, and yes, the ag groups, including pork producers at that time, really stood up and said, this isn't, doesn't work for us. Because in Iowa, the pork producers, many pork producers have been installing solar for, for many years. And we here and other groups And some other counties have really been pushing that again. It goes back to some of that technical assistance. And so that legislative effort one year ago stalled and failed. And that was a a really big shocker again, a really big victory. So that was the foundation for where we're at now. And you can't really look at just a single year's legislature like this and say, wow, look at that victory, because this was all leading up to it. The other big pieces that are leading up to it, we believe, are that the investor owns, especially especially probably mid-American energy, really are looking hard at investing in big solar. So Iowa, as many people know, is a big wind state. And both our big investor-owns and many of the consumer-owns in in their consortia have been investing in wind. That works. That's a good thing. Now the next frontier is big solar. We've all been saying small solar is critically important. That's where the local ownership is. We haven't, winni and most of our state partnership hasn't said big renewables are bad because we really believe that we need both big renewables and small renewables to get the accelerated clean energy transition that we need, as much as we really promote and push the local ownership benefits, the local clean energy prosperity, locally led stewardship. We don't oppose big renewables. And so for the large utilities really interested, we believe, in investing in big solar, big time in the near future in Iowa they really needed to get this issue, this fight with the advocates, with solar advocates about small solar, off the table. (laughs) Because their approvals for big solar were going to need some pretty unified state, (laughs) pro-solar, pro-utility environment, including at the utilities board and with the regulators and policymakers, or they might have trouble. So I think all of those issues, the history, Certainly, the involvement of some non-traditional advocates for solar, like ag groups like the pork producers, as well as the utilities' desire to go move ahead with big solar and not wanting this, this fight, this ongoing fight about net metering, all came together and essentially allowed for a few months of discussions leading up to the, leading up to the legislative session and then a compromise, quote, compromise bill that was mostly a codification of net metering for many years to drop and then pass unanimously. I'm pretty sure it was actually unanimous in both the House and the Senate. It might have had one or two dissenting votes, but it just sailed right through. And here we are. And so it is. It's an amazing victory that comes from, you know, on the backs of hundreds of people over many years. And we're not done yet. That's important to note because it codifies in that metering. It actually codifies the value of solar concept too because as you mentioned, it essentially goes through 2027 the legal basis but it also says that at about 5 percent of DG solar in the state we shall pursue a process for establishing the value of solar so right now it's just that old-style net metering balance of trade one-to-one through a couple of different mechanisms options but then it establishes the idea that solar should be valued more specifically the benefits the costs and benefits of solar should be quantified, and that that may happen will probably happen at some point down the road. So it's important to get that concept in there, and we think that's a really good thing. Now, I say we're not done yet in part because this sets up for a number of years, that's good, but those number of years are going to pass. But even before that, this is a bill, and a bill needs to be translated into regulatory action at the utility board, which means the utilities, Alliant and Mid-America, need to submit their tariffs that conform to the bill. What kind of shenanigans might they play in creating those tariffs, the new net metering tariffs? We don't know. (laughs) We hope they'll just follow the letter and spirit of the law and the compromise and just move them through. But if they try and subvert what we believe was established in the law, then many advocates, we and many others, will have to jump in as interveners and try and fight that battle. And I should say, we at Winner have been heavily involved in some of these regulatory and policy issues, but our partners at the state level really often, generally are the leaders, the Environmental Council, the Environmental Law and Policy Center. Those groups have, have been real leaders in Iowa solar policy for a long, long time, so need to give a shout-out to, to those folks. So, yes, we're in a pretty good position right now, we think, but it's it's a never-ending struggle, really.
1: Well, it's really great to hear when clean energy has bipartisan support, and especially in a traditionally red state. Net metering has been a point of contention in many states, and with many utilities, there's been a great deal of pushback. So, like you said, this new bill in Iowa is a big victory, and really has the capability to create a much more advantageous solar market and boost Main Street investment in solar. But, like you said, there are never-ending struggles. So can you leave us with your advice on some grassroots actions that Midwestern folks can take in their home states to push for solar-supportive policies like net metering?
0: Well, you can get the champions together, create a team of champions, create an organization, try to build an institution, and, of course, the challenge oftentimes is the resources, the financial resources to support the people resources to do the work. But I do believe that whether it's an energy district or, you know, another type of organization or working through other existing institutions, I really do believe that putting the boots on the ground essentially to say, yes, big renewables, okay, big renewables, we need big renewables, but not to the preclusion or exclusion of customers and communities. We need the right and we will hold the right to invest in ourselves and build that wealth and build that that better society right here at home
1: well that was an excellent call to action to leave our listeners with andy thank you for all your insight today is there any final words that you'd like to leave us with
0: oh i think i've said enough
1: (laughs) well on that note thank you for being here with us today and sharing your insights thank you to you and your team for all that you do to advance solar and energy efficiency in the midwest
0: we appreciate you Well, you're welcome, and thank you and everyone over your way across the Driftless and beyond. Um, Yep, we're all in this together, so thanks a bunch.
1: Be sure to tune in to upcoming episodes of Rise Up to hear important insights and timely updates from the experts that are working in and on the pressing issues that affect your access to clean energy. On our next episodes, we'll sit down with David Bender, clean energy attorney of the nonprofit organization Earth Justice, who argued and won the Kansas Supreme Court case that struck down extra fees on solar-owning Kansans. Sarah Baldwin, the electrification policy director at Energy Innovation, about the new grid modernization hand book she helped develop, and with Denise Abdul-Rahman, the regional field organizer for the NAACP about environmental justice concerns surrounding coal plants in the Midwest. The RIZA podcast is powered by the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, a nonprofit organization out of Custer, Wisconsin, whose mission is to promote renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable living through education and demonstration. To learn more about MREA and its programs, including renewable energy training, Grow Solar, and the Solar Corps, please visit www.midwestrenew.org. We'd love for you to join the conversation. We'll be taking listener questions, recommendations for future interviews, and highlighting the important stories that you send in. So write us at info at riseupmidwest.org.